are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. Justin here with a quick word. In this episode, I chat with voice and screen actor Lawrence Bain about Pink Floyd, X-Men the Animated Series, Voice and Cable, Disney, and more. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. Helps us on the internet and algorithms and all that good stuff. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Take us back in time. Uh, when you were a kid, what sort of things were you into? You know, were you a big reader? What's the scoop? I was big into words. My parents pushed uh, books on me in such a way I invented a, a book generating uh, a machine with my bed. I wrote down as many words as I knew at the age of seven, and that was quite a few, and uh, on individual pieces of paper. Then I stuck them underneath the uh, springs of my bed. Then I would jump on the bed, then I would reach under and pick up the paper that got dislodged and make a sentence out of it. Wow, that's impressive. That was the first computer, I guess, I had. For a seven-year-old. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, little bit advanced in the old reading comprehension stuff. It hit me, it hit me early, and I, my parents were great in that they let me read just about anything. When you do look back, well, what were some of your favorite things to read or watch back during those years? I like mob stories. I like oh. uh, organized crime stuff. Probably around age 13 or 14, I did a school project on the Roaring Twenties, which included, you know, a 1920s wax album that my aunt had had of fiction about being Capone's wheel man, participating in the first drive-by shooting, which happened in <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> and I was a big fan, and I did this whole uh, project on it, and it sat for many years under glass in display at the Central Library in Toronto because I won a prize for being so into prohibition and stuff. <laughs> man. So... Is it around the same time that your interest in the arts sort of arose? You know, that that's the Beatles. That's Ed Sullivan. That, and also, as it happens, uh, I lived above the movie theater that premiered A Hard Day's Night in Toronto in 1966. The theater was really directly just below us. And for an entire summer, pretty much couldn't sleep until the last show was done because girls were lining up and going into the theater and screaming for the entire length of the Mark Lester film, not giving a shit about the movie and certainly not being able to hear the songs all that clearly on a eight by 10 cloth covered speaker that supplied all the sound for the film. All I heard were girls screams. I've probably had something to do with my formative years as well as a bad guy and a thug and you know. <laughs> you cut your teeth early. I did. I cut my teeth on a lot of things early. I'm like, I'm ready to go, man. <laughs> 
Were you a theater kid? Did you ever join a drama class or anything like that? Did your parents have any I, kind of interest? I, I, again, I'm going to talk about excelling in that. I, I was in grade nine. It was the last full grade that I actually participated in. I saw the grade 12 theater group doing something, and it was mime. And I just sort of vamped in front of the stage they were on in between a show, and they called me a smart ass, and I got to join the grade 12 drama club for the... <laughs> three months that I was left in my life as an academic. <laughs> Mime uh, absolutely took me. I School took us on a class trip to see Marcel Marceau, and uh, he blew my mind. And that's the first thing I started performing. I started doing Mime. My mother was uh, and father were both deeply involved in the Scouts, Boy Scouts of Canada. I would go in and entertain the beavers and the cubs doing my little <laughs> mime shtick. And then I would sort of ratchet it up on adults and I'd go down to the Young Street Mall, which used to be a very cool place to hang out. And I would do mime there on the streets with a hat in front of me, and at which night's end there would be money and joints and pills and phone numbers in it. So it was a Started getting paid pretty early, too. <laughs> hey, you can't beat that. That's what it's all no, about. No, Good night. Good night. Good night was had. So a lot of actors that I speak to are folks that work a, a lot in the voiceover community usually point to things like uh, mime or improv being more important than, you know, having a great voice or being a mimic. Is Would you say that's fair to say? I think I got into voice uh, about three or four years after I was officially signed up with an agent. And I'm sure a lot of people would have been happier if I'd stayed to mime one doesn't have to do with the other obviously you're not working on your voice skills when you're doing mime i was you know doing rock and roll and singing and my best friend and writing songs when we were 12 and until last weekend we're still doing it <laughs> but uh, my voice i was sort of noticed by uh, a casting director in toronto kim hurden i was sitting on the porch of the uh, black bull patio and i was holding the court or fourth at least with my table in loud, drunken tones, but still in this wonderful, mellifluous baritone that you're hearing here. And I wanted to be in voice, and I asked my agent to hook me up with somebody, and it ended up that this woman had already sort of heard me at, at the bar and uh, yeah, agreed to have me audition for something. And uh, it was for Hyundai, and I bagged it. First audition out of the gate. And I've been doing voice ever since, and that's now 45 years. I, well, I learned on the job, man. I think that's where you should learn it because, I mean, acting is coming in and with a whole lot of preconceptions, most of which you have to kick the shit out of to do your job at some point or another. You learn about mic technique on a mic. And if you've got good people, kind people, and you are a good and kind person to work with, they'll share their secrets with you. I mean, it's a very generous community, the voiceover community. And the people who work in the engineer, they, they just love a guy who they can get along with. They're already dealing with clients who at some points in my career have been absolutely absurd caricatures of human beings. The guy who's just scrubbing his nose every 30 seconds and it's 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 quarter to fucking 11 in the morning. And the guy's just waiting, 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 waiting because he hasn't slept in two days because he thinks he's being creative, telling you to make the next take more orange and shit like that. So <laughs> you learn on the job. And mostly I got, I remember I had an easel with my work on it and I was getting frustrated with the guy. He wanted me to say Stouffer's Lean Cuisine again and again and again. And I'm talking almost up into the triple digits. Stouffer's Lean Cuisine. And the engineer came in because he saw that steam was shooting out of my ears. 
came in. He said, just, I just need to fix something. And he winks at me. He says, you're off, Mike, man. He said, I'm just going to fix this easel for you so that you can put your hand behind it and do this every now and then just so you can get through the through the uh, session, okay? Smile, but do this right behind there. <laughs> like that. that was the best uh, acting advice I ever got for voice work. Commercials are hard, of course. They're the, they're the hardest thing to do because, you know, there's a phalanx of people. I remember even back in the old days, like 10 people sitting in the stand, they're talking to each other. And now there's 10 people talking to 20 people on laptops and cell phones as you do your work. And it's, you know, they give you options like in these interviews, do you want to be on camera or not? And mostly I don't want to be on camera, but for voice work, I especially don't want to be on camera. Right. And sometimes give you that that option and I will take it every time. Yeah, I'm not here for you to dislike my glasses. I'm here for you to dislike my glasses. So I generally cut it off. Uh, but when you're there in the studio, you just you look at the work in front of you and um, you smile and you do as you're told. I mean, that's not I mean, I, I'm not I don't have any resentment against that. That is the gig, man. You do as you're told in, in the advertising world. You do as you're told in almost every creative sphere. But, you know, there can be some collaboration sometimes, you know, when you're working on a series or working in a film or even working on a, you know, a, a regular you know, uh, animated thing. There can be collaboration, yeah. but you just count on it. You shouldn't count on it at all. But in the advertising gig, there is no collaboration. You do as you're told. So, and you know, getting angry about doing what you're told is you're not going to last long in this biz. Right. Would you say more times when you have a direct, a voice director that is more eager to let you riff kind of, and maybe put on some input, it's more fun and everybody ends up having a, a better time and the work is better. I would think so, yeah. I mean, and, and you you know, you, you have to be just as polite. You know, you have to put up your hand after you've done a take and say, can I take a shot at it, something? You know, can I throw some paprika on that or do, can I put something in this and try it again? And if they'll say, no, we're happy with what you have, then be happy that they, they're happy. You know, that's that's all that can be said about that. But if they say, sure, give it another shot. And you do it and they go, okay, thank you. And they like it or they don't like it. Sometimes... You know, they, the casting directors will hold their own opinions really tight to their chest. Because remember, they're just a conduit to the client anyway. Right. So they can't be going, that was great, man. Because they've got to be going, that was great, right? <laughs> that person over there has to nod their head sagely. And then they can come back and tell you that you were great. Just a chain of command, or as we call it, the shit rolls downhill syndrome. <laughs> So we can't just gloss over your uh, rock and roll days you just mentioned there. What kind of stuff were you guys playing? I called it R&B goth. Music you can die to. It's got a beat you can die to. It was dark stuff. I mean, I've done, I can do with the two collaborators that I work with. We can pretty much do all genres because they're brilliant. Me imitating, you know, some vocal stylings is one thing, but you've really got to have a band. And uh, I've had two collaborators over the last 40 years, basically, same people over and over. Been in a various bunch of bands. See, an actor with a band. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> but uh, I, it was fun, man. I, I mean, I like doing it because it's my words out there. I mean, I'm writing poetry and writing a book as well, and I'm stomping those grounds. But rock and roll and writing lyrics, thats I really love writing a good lyric, and I sure like belting it out. How did you eventually land that first big break onto the screen? <laughs> I was very hungover one Saturday. <laughs> I uh, was sitting with my friend Steve, again, a collaborator, and we had had a night among nights, and we were 
crawling around with cobwebs in our head about 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. And I was called by my first ever theatrical agent and, you know, put a little little context on that. My first ever theatrical agent didn't do fucking anything for me. Like, not one call, nothing ever. And I'd been signed up for about six months. And then they called on a Saturday, which I thought was, really? Would you would like to go to a video audition and i didn't know what that meant to be honest i said you have a video audition yes it's for a rock video and i said okay who's it for and my friend is close enough to hear the phone he said it's for pink floyd and he's like you gotta go you gotta go you gotta go (laughs) i didn't want to go man i didn't want to go oh god i was so hung over and so fucked up i didn't want to go he says you gotta go man so that it that's what made my career i went down and i auditioned for the Pink Floyd video, Learning to Fly, and I got it. The audition process was nearly enough to make me just want to quit everything. (laughs) I got there, as I said, hung over, and there was a big waiting room, and there was about 100 people in it, and about 30 of them were children under the age of 10. I uh, probably started thinking vasectomy right around then. (laughs) They were just, it was just a tumult, and I was there way longer than I should have been. Of course, they were running behind. And when I finally did get in the room, there was another long table set up, kind of Last Supper-like, with this guy in the middle who was clearly emanating authority. His name was Storm Thorgerson. He designed the albums for Yes, Not Fragile, stuff like that. Director, and he directed me in the video. At this audition, he was ignoring me totally. So I went into a mime lean, and then I started drinking mime drinks. (laughs) And looking at people and cheering them and just ignoring the people. And so finally he said, uh, uh, hello, hello. And I looked over and went, oh, me? And he goes, yeah. Because what's your name? I said, Lawrence. Uh, well, thank you, Lawrence. We yeah, have fuck you. <laughs> thank you, Lawrence. I hadn't done anything. Goodbye. <laughs> I got called back, much to my surprise. My friend, by the way, was very pissed. I went home and said, I told him to fuck off. What'd you do that for, man? You should have, you know, come on. <laughs> um, I got called back and Storm himself met me at his hotel room, which kind of spooked me for a minute or two. But Thorm is a straight up above head guy, but no problems. But I was like, really, I got to go to a hotel room now? <laughs> so down to the Chelsea Delta, I go in Toronto and I meet Storm and he wants to do some acting games with me, <laughs> which I love so much. He said, um, take my key, leave the room, come back like it's your room and then you you discover me there i just want to see your reaction so i left the room i came back in i used his key to open the mini bar knowing he was right there poured a bottle a little bottle of jack and i drank it then i turned and i saw him and i threw the keys at his head and he said cut and <laughs> then fired me had a great time thorm is in third he was an irascible cockney brute and a lot of fun and we flew 3,000 feet above sea level and shot that video. And it was a weekend in Calgary, but we were shooting in Black Diamond. I went up in a biplane for the first time in my life. I was in a glider uh, and it was learning to fly. I went up in a helicopter. I'd never been in any of these flying machines before. And it was uh, a lot of fun. And once that video hit, started getting awards, worldwide play. I went to a real agent said, this is what I have. I'm not talking, <laughs> but this is me. <laughs> and uh, that was Carrie Fallis, and I was with Carrie. She was my agent for 19 years. I retired her. So is it safe to say that you had no musical interest in Pink Floyd at the time? I love Pink Floyd, man. I mean, I love Pink Floyd. I just knew that the video wasn't going to be me hanging out with Pink Floyd. I knew that. 
As it turned out, I kind of did because we came back to Toronto and they did three concerts in a row at the CNE and I was uh, in the hotel room for three days in a row partying with the boys. Oh, shit. All I'm prepared to share. I was about to say, do you, do you remember most of that? <laughs> I remember it all. <laughs> I'm like yeah. Keith Richards that way, man. I remember it all. <laughs> it can be it can be a bit much. Sometimes <laughs> I'll think of shit I've done and gone. You're just lucky to be sitting here drawing breath, buddy. <laughs> How did the opportunity for X-Men eventually come about for you? I think I was already sort of, I was just basically hired to do some utility voices on X-Men TAS back in the day. And then uh, Dan Hennessy uh, invited me to do the voice of Cable. And Cable took off, both with the fans and with, you know, the people that, who were running X-Men at that point. It wasn't the mouse at that point, but it was somebody. <laughs> I'm a utility voice, man. I can do a fair amount. I've got a good range of voices and tombers and stuff that I can do. So... It just sort of came to me that, you know, I'd get utility pickup work, but it's it's an unremarkable story. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, mean, I know X-Men is, is just fucking huge now, and I love it. You know, the resurgence for me hasn't hurt, but certainly not as exciting as the Pink Floyd video. Uh, nothing, <laughs> just going in and doing a tough guy voice. Yeah, that's about it. And animation and all animation is kind of like that now. You, you go in and you give them their take on what they've asked for, and then, you know, you get to do your own take, especially if you've, you know, been in the business long enough, I guess. They sort of let us old dogs have our bark, and then uh, then they compare it to what they want. On we go or on we don't. Now, were you given a good bit of direction for Cable, or were you allowed to kind of go in no, there? No, just... Cable, was, Cable was just basically me without the swearing. I did Cable really, really conventionally. There was, And, and you have to understand that the, the, the folks at TAS were looking for actors when they uh, were looking for voice. And the voice business at that point was just slowly being infiltrated by actors because prior to that it was the province of fm djs some theater actors who who got into it mostly in-house radio commercials in-house television commercials were done by the announcers at the station it's only when ads themselves became less announcery you know the 1945 month is now you know some guy talking about the 1945 month over (laughs) over a drink you know so we're all we're all supposed to be conversational now uh, it kind of makes us seem more real. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of the mouse, did you show up to your audition of uh, the famous Jet Jackson in the same state as the Pink Floyd audition? No. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, uh, you know what? Again, that was something I was just given. You keep hitting on, the, on these ones that are so funny because Jamie Paul Rock is a producer and saw me on Nikita and deduced that every time the cameras roll or stopped rolling, I was actually funny. I wasn't dark and nasty as, as you know, the auditions that I get. So I was just given this role of Dr. Hypnoto, who wore six inch platform shoes and purple lame suit. And oddly enough, you know, I was brought to set, I was put in this outfit and the outfit spoke. I was not on set for another three hours and actually getting a little pissed, but like I said, they gave me the job. <laughs> so standing there in this ridiculous ensemble, Waiting and waiting and waiting, I came up with this guy, Dr. Hypnoto, who was a cross between Paul Lind and Sam Kinison. He could be very, very nervous, and he could also yell very loud, which I won't do for the sake of your eardrums or mine. <laughs> but no, Jet Jackson was great. Plush Mr. Pudding was my little creature He's in the other room right now. And I got to write a song on it, and I still get, <laughs> what, 40 cents on in checks from 
songwriting royalties from the mouths long oh, before. Nice. I was, yeah, so I wrote a song for them, and and Dr. Hypnotta was a, a lot of fun. He was obviously gay, I thought, but the mouse would not let me play that too much. He was obviously a really shitty father because I had a son, a wonderful actor, whose name I will forget. He was somewhat overweight, but he shaved his head for the role to look like my son. And I said, if I had something I'd do, I said, you gotta have that kid. And I used to pick him up by his ear and go, come with me, in, in a scene. And, and the mouse came down on me for that, too. He said, you can't be beating up your kid. I said, I browbeat him with every <laughs> word I say, but I can't touch his ear? No. Okay. The uh, gay pride uh, thing was happening one weekend, and I was filming that very role, and I used to take a deck chair up on top of the honey wagon and sit up there because I could see the 401 and I'd be waving in my purple outfit with a rainbow sign welcoming everybody to the gay pride thing and uh, the mouse said I couldn't do that either <laughs> you're kind of already touching on my next question I was going to ask you know, since yeah. it's Disney are they overly involved to be nice about it they're as involved as they have to be in these times. You know, I can't fault them for, for, for wanting to keep a tight ship. Certainly when you don't these days, people are prone to telling lies, basically. I think Disney's doing the smart thing, you know, uh, sensitivity training and, and making sure that you know what their landscape is like. Mm -hmm. I think there are some places where you go and you'll discover that it's not to your liking, but Disney leaves no mystery at all. You are safe there. Should you uh, fuck up, they've, they've got it right there. Some are going, see, right here, right there. That's what you did. Out. I don't mind making fun of the mouse. They can take that, but I won't disparage for not for holding these rules so tight and uh, and uh, wanting to uh, make sure that their staff and their and their you know their people and the people like us that they hire are uh, all on the same page. We're all polite Canadians up here, but most of us agree that you know we wouldn't do that stuff anyway. I've never run into you know a particularly monstrous sexist or racist on a, on a film set. And if I did, I'd be the first one to call them out on it. Right. I mean, this is the thing. I wouldn't run to the mouse to say, he did that. I'd walk them over and say, he looks like that because he did this. There's nobody doing that on, on my watch. And, and certainly none of the ensembles I've worked with, you know, I never met a bad egg among them, to be honest. You have to meet important people to find out that they're reprehensible. Well, all us people working in the salt mines and doing our daily gigs and being journeymen, which is what, how I see myself, you respect your area, man. You don't shit where you eat. You don't, you know, you don't piss off your, your colleagues and you, you don't speak to them as if they're anything less than that. So at the same time that, you know, you're doing the X-Men, Canada is booming in the voice acting realm. What is the, what was the catalyst for that, do you think, back in those days? I think it was Toronto was the epicenter for a lot of voice work. We went from like 3,000 people across Canada to 3,000 in Toronto in the space of uh, two summers, yeah, that we're doing voice. The reason is because Toronto is uh, just a hotbed of really talented people there's no other way to put it you know the the theater and and the acting and the and the people and i don't know how else to put it i'm always blown away by toronto talent i always understand why you know mm, yeah. we're, we're, at the, we're at the forefront of that voice work and toronto went along really well because i think from the american point of view we were cheap but from the overall point of view it was a large pool even then to choose from but now it's staggering you know there's a lot of people doing it you know, I finally hit that arc where they're going, get somebody who sounds like Lord in Spain, but for cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> You're probably like, well, I know Lauren's Bain for cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Like, like at this point? <laughs> Come on, man. I'll do it for a nice set of shoes. Let's just have some work. 
Let me ask you this. So, Lawrence, if you could go back and have a second crack at a role or maybe take a different approach to something, what would it be? Ah, that's interesting. You know, I auditioned for Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Oh, shit. I did. I don't know why I got it, but I auditioned for Dracula. So I would have done it differently. Yeah, I would have liked me to do it. Oldman was fantastic, of course. But I think I would have liked to have bagged that role. Wow. Did, is that another thing you just got called for? You just yep. tried just it out? An audition, just an audition. It was an audition to go. And yeah, it was for Dracula. Because I, what you don't know at some of the auditions, of course, is that who you're auditioning for. And ah. there, was no, there was no indication that this was Coppola. But then it became apparent when the film came out. That it was that that he had done this sweep for for a Dracula. Coppola's a sucker, and he always hires names. So you know, <laughs> that's, not that I don't like almost every film he's ever made. But <laughs> what was your Dracula like in terms of how it? Would well, differ? it was you know they, it was again. Now we're talking. Still, we're talking 35, 40 years. Yeah, ago. yeah, I, I got you. <laughs> my Dracula was I, I probably tried to avoid doing the Bela Lugosi, but there was some sort of flat. Eastern European accent going underneath it, and you were given the stock lines. I mean, you know the Bram Stoker thing, and it's a thick, hard, you know, almost impenetrable book at times. But the one thing I gleaned from the monstrousness of Dracula was that he was a gentleman as well, and so you try to bring that courtliness to his to his role. And so many people have done it now. There's a uh, actor called Clay Bangs who just recently portrayed Dracula. It's a Netflix series, and it's magnificent. They bring Dracula into present day as well, and they do it seamlessly. It's re- really well done. Yeah, Dracula. I would have liked Dracula. I would have liked that. That's a good choice. I can't complain. Yeah, I can't complain about uh, any roles I overly missed. I think I auditioned for Children of Men as well. Loved it. I loved her dialogue, Pregnant Girl's dialogue, and it was off her that I was trying to get the part. But I have a friend in the business, uh, Tony Napo, who's quite successful, who says, you can't tell whether they're over the moon or, or you've shit the bed when it comes to an audition. You can't tell. You can go out of there feeling like, man, did I ever cover it? I hit all the I hit all the, the points. You know, I got all the colors, I hit all the flavors, and they don't you don't hear back. And you really don't want to hear their appraisal either. I guess some <laughs> actors do. You know, they want to go, well what did they think anyway? Well first of all, they didn't pick you. What does it matter what they thought? <laughs> it astounds me the people who think this business is competitive it's not competitive no one comes in second you know no one is there going well i almost got it no you didn't you just didn't get it you didn't almost not get it you didn't get it move on and it's not like you should be up there at the front going i got it because you have no idea you know the hoops and hurdles you're about to go through before you get it you, you might know? not get another one you might not get another one it sounds like it's almost like a Ricky Bobby situation, you know. If you're not first, you're last. The yeah, no, that's, that's all it is, man. I mean, I I agree with that. If you're not first, you're last. You, <laughs> it's not competitive. You can't go. I, I I was almost as good. You were good, or you weren't. You were right, or you weren't. Better to say that. It's better to say you were right for the part, or you were wrong. But if you go around after that thinking you're wrong as an actor, yeah, it's a cancer. It can eat at you. You know, it's where bitterness finds its place to find purchase in you. And um, once bitterness comes into it, you're uh, going to the dark side. Yeah, you're you're hitting the dark side there. (laughs) So, you know, I'm glad that after almost 50 years, I am not bitter about those opportunities that were missed. They were just auditions. They were just gigs I didn't get, man. They weren't opportunities I missed, you know. 
also when you look back on your career what role would you say has been the most difficult if you have to pick one is there anyone that you lost sleep over anything like that i lost sleep over um nihatan which was a character i portrayed in the film black rope black rope was about the jesuits trying to teach indigenous people that you know they lived in outer darkness and their god was number one i am cree inuit scottish and icelandic by the way i come to the parts naturally i do indigenous roles but nihatan was was difficult i had one line in english and the rest was done in cree i was born at the corner of young and <laughs> bluer and and Sherbin in Toronto. So I don't have any, and, and Cree is a very old language and is not taught, uh, not known by many. But we had an instructor, a tutor named Helen Bear, who taught us Cree. Monstrously hard language to learn. I mean, I won't lie to you, it's very hard to learn and it's very hard to retain. And Helen's chief complaint with me was she would kiss after Bruce Beresford yelled, Cut, damn it, Lawrence, you sound like you're from Brooklyn. Talk like an Indian. <laughs> so I guess I was saying, Yeah, she said I sounded like I was from Brooklyn. So. <laughs> Cree Joe Pesci. Cree Joe Pesci over here, there. So, yeah, it was, uh, that was funny, but I still, I don't know, I still felt like. If she was thinking that, I mean, there was 80 extras on this film, and they weren't all Cree. There was Mohawk, there was Iroquois, there was Montagnier. We had a really, really big indigenous cast. But, yeah, I, that was hard for me. I, I really wanted to get to the point where I was thinking in the language, but I could never do that. And that's yeah. called Black Robe? Yeah, Black Robe. I'm yep. going to write that down so directed, I can it Directed by Bruce Beresford, and most notably stars uh, my spiritual father as well, August Schellenberg, who we lost a couple of years ago. But Augie was my spiritual father from about age 14. He lived in the neighborhood, and then we ended up being in various projects together, sometimes as indigenous and sometimes as crooks. We were both on Getting Gaudy, starred Lorraine Bracco. Uh, we, we got to trash a bakery dressed up in our suits over there, breaking a bakery <laughs> to hassle a guy. That was me and Augie, and that was a lot of fun, too. Lorraine was fun, too. She played the um, prosecutor or whatever, and I played Sammy Gravano and a couple of... It was a sort of a mishmash, composite character of just a mob guy. And Lorraine was funny as hell, man. She was, she was fun to work with. She was LB, so I was LB. So we were calling each other LB. She had a great and wonderfully revolved sense of humor. We were on break while they were setting up, and I was just sitting in the witness box, and she was just leaning up against it, and we were talking... And I won't lie to you, a little flirting going on, but I think, you know, not, not towards an end, just flirting. And besides, Edward James almost was on the set, and that's one scary motherfucker. <laughs> to this day. To this day. Oh, yeah, man. And what a fantastic actor, but holy Christ. Like burning holes through her, just looking at her through the whole thing. And I'm looking at him going, oh, shit. Anyway, she says to me, Lauren, she taps her left knee. She goes, this is Christmas. And she brings this one, taps her right, and he goes, this is New Year's. Come and see me between the holidays. Lorraine Bracco said that to me. Oh, I nearly lost my shit there. <laughs> wow. She was fine. I worked with her almost for 12 days. Yeah. What were we talking about? <laughs> You've worked a good amount of TV shows and film. What's the biggest differences in those mediums for an actor? The attention you pay to the director, I guess. <laughs> 
William Davis said uh, something very similar to that. Well, TV directors are, are coming in every every week. Uh, you get on a series. I was on the series Strange Days at Blake Holsey High for four seasons. And within, you know, middle of the second season, we were getting a guest director every week. And I began to notice that they wanted to, you know, maybe put their imprimatur on it and stuff like that. But there was also directing styles, which had to deal with it. Now, this was a largely kid-populated show. So you got kid friendly act kid friendly directors who you know do things like speak down to you <laughs> speak politely <laughs> enough to you but you know with that oh could you just so this director said if we could just move you over here and and, and he began to touch my elbow i said don't do that please i said i'm not four tell me where to stand and i'll do that for you okay oh i'm i'm very sorry i'm very sorry i said stop doing that <laughs> stop apologizing for doing your job but know this i'm not four and i'm not i'm not a posable action figure tell me where to go tell me what to do and then if you don't like how i'm doing it tell me how you think i should do it better and maybe i'll agree with you film directors you know you give it up you just go you 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 do your thing hopefully unimpeded by them and when they do impede upon you hopefully it's not uh, an inconvenience it's it's a guide it's a it's an embellisher it opens your eyes it refreshes the role for you when they speak of it. If a d film director hires you anyway, you're already in the bailiwick. You're already hired. You'd have to go some far piece to fuck it up if the director <laughs> goes, want you for this role in a film. You know, if they start getting overly frantic about how you're doing things, that's really not on you, unless you're some neurotic cookie flake who walks in there with a whole new take on the role since I auditioned. <laughs> they don't want to hear about it, like at all. Television directors, when they come in and they guest, you have to tell them, you know, there's a Bible that comes with this, with an episodic show that they'd read. Here's what the characters do. Here's how they work. This will be applied to the script writers as well. You know, they have to stay within the parameters of this Bible. Uh, directors will come in and read that or won't. And then you'll sort of say, no, that's I won't do that. My character doesn't do that. My character in Blake Holsey High, for no reason at all that had anything to do with on camera, was in bare feet. All times I wore bare feet. I don't know why I took it on. I think because of my character was somewhat predatory and I wanted to feel the earth under my feet while I walked down the school hall <laughs> while I was taking over the, you know, the science institute. I wanted to walk like I was hunting. That was just a choice I made. And everybody agreed with it the first two seasons. It was no problem. I came in, I think, on the third season. The director said, we need you to have shoes on for this. I go, why? Well, because we want shoes on. He said, no, but why? Am my feet going to be in the shot? No. I said, no, I'm not putting the shoes on. And that was that. Then a producer came down and said, he doesn't have to put the shoes on. Then there was a shot episode where all the kids got shrunk and they were dodging my feet. I wore shoes for that one because they had to fill my feet and then block it off and then have the effects afterwards. So obviously bare feet would have been a little incongruous <laughs> when they were filling the entire screen. I spoke with uh, William B. Davis a few weeks ago and he said, you don't argue with the director. You just say, yes, ma'am. Or no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. And then you do what you were going to do anyway when this when it starts. <laughs> That's right. It's the old story about Hitchcock, you know, and, and he gets the print back from the censors for Psycho, and they say, there's nudity in here, take it out. And he opens the can, reads, there's nudity in here, take it out, fills out a form, says, done, puts it back in the same film, puts it back, and they go, right, there's no nudity, great, let's move on. So, yeah, you do, I mean, William's right about that. You, you do, you, you yes, you nod, you say yes, you're never, you're never hard to do work with. And then you do what you were setting up to do anyway. <laughs> I'm okay with 
that if it works, if they if they come back and absolutely say, look, if that that particular spot you're hitting with that isn't working, we need you to try it this way. Of course, I'll try it that way. It's not the end of the world. You know, with the NDAs you get now that are 25 pages thick and the swear you to silence shit, you'd think that we were actually curing cancer. And it's not that important, folks. It's entertainment. <laughs> Everybody's job is important in it, but the overall thing I get from it is that somebody's going to sit down and watch me for 20 minutes, and I've learned to be a little little more gracious about this, a little more humble. When people have seen my work that, you know, 40 years ago they saw, and they come up and 20 years ago, and then, you know, 10 minutes ago, and they say, I loved you in that, and that was great, and what was it like? He used to try to not be dismissive and go, I don't know, I don't remember, I live so in the moment. That I, I don't really, you know, I don't gather a lot of stories. I don't share stories. This is difficult for me, but on, on the aspect of that I know what I'm talking about, hell. I mean, you don't know what you're talking about. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody agrees with that. <laughs> Say you're sitting down for the evening to watch a few of your favorite movies. What are some of those movies on that list? Oh, man. I just watched The Hunt with uh, Betty Gilpin. It came out right around uh, Trump, and uh, they pulled it because it was about... A bunch of elitist, privileged people actually hunting the ones who don't believe in. It was hilarious. It was a very, very funny movie. Betty Gilpin, I saw her uh, in uh, in L.A. She was playing Macbeth in an all-female Macbeth. And I fell in love with her weird, quirky little facial expressions. And I'm watching the hunt, not realizing it's her, until she made this facial expression. I went, that's Macbeth! And I've been watching all of her stuff since. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. And the movie is funny as hell. It's really good. Philadelphia Story, Cary Grant, James Stewart, Catherine Hepburn. I'm a big Catherine Hepburn fan. The Line in Winter, I was also in the play, The Line in Winter, as Richard. And that was Anthony Hopkins' premiere role. Uh, that was the first thing he ever did on camera was wow. Line in Winter, as Line in Winter. Yeah. Interesting enough, the set designer for that, Peter James, was the uh, DOP on Black Robe many years later. So I got to talk to him about working, uh, how what it was like, you know, working with the great O'Toole and even the greater Hepburn. And... Uh, she said, it mostly it was like funny because said Catherine Hepburn just couldn't handle the fact that Peter O'Toole could show up, just a bag of shit. And then the camera would go on and he'd just illuminate. Guy was a pro no matter how much he drank. <laughs> I was going to say the great ones have that ability no matter what. Yep, yep, yep. For a while anyway. I mean, you know, you can, you can know, well, you can't, you can't watch John Barrymore, his last couple of films, because he's just done. He's damaged beyond belief. You know, his uh, the alcohol had just basically made him unable to remember a line. And he wasn't as deft at reading the cards as Brando was. Yeah, I was going to say, Brando, what, what, yeah. what was Brando's last film? Was it The Island of Dr. Moreau? The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I love car crashes, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I used to do, um, I used to be the voice of, uh, especially channel, you know, because they're gone now. Uh, showcase action, which was just action movies. Don't know why Dr. Moreau was on the action channel, but I used, I used to be, I was doing the throws. I was the signature voice for the channel. Coming up next on showcase action. Uh, so <laughs> I used to be able to allow, I used to, I was allowed to fritter with the scripts a little. So uh, that one was tonight at seven, Marlon Brando is the island of Dr. Moreau because you know, the man was so immense <laughs> and, and yet so brilliant. And then there was Corey Feldman, Corey Heim ski movie, where in which I said, tonight the two Corys do a lot of powder. In uh, yeah, so all that's gone now. I, I had that gig for 18 years, 
Uh, for that, the voice of National Geographic and the voice of Showcase. And then they replaced us with nothing. So you were the <laughs> National just, Geographic guy? Yeah, for a while. Yep, about five years. Five oh. years there, and I switched around. And then I was on, uh, I did Discovery for a little while, too. Just they, they, were, they were moving me around to inevitably move me out. <laughs> right took them 18 years so i'm not complaining too much you got your money's worth out of them yeah yes i do is there anything on the horizon for you anything in the pipeline you can tell us about i cannot <laughs> okay <laughs> i hear that a lot it's, it's uh, you know what i think it's bullshit to be honest that i can't tell you about stuff that i've signed on and doing and it's yeah, it's nonsense. However, it is nonsense that I must follow to a T. I mean, because I'd like to be interviewed. And so telling you that I'm doing something that'll get me fired kind of shoots myself in the foot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did audition for my first commercial in about 30 years, just about two days ago. Just an Ontario commercial, I'm guessing. That was weird. <laughs> Has that process changed a lot since you last done it? The only other commercial I did was a really reprehensible racist stereotype uh, of a Mexican uh, bandito with the double bandoliers, and it was for Visine, and they had me looking the Frito bandito, basically. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I didn't have any words in that one, and prior to that, I did an actual mime commercial as a mime, where I didn't have any words in that. This one features words, but, you know, nothing to uh, have to, to cram for. Don't know, don't know. Just did it, just did it uh, two days ago, the audition, so who knows? Awesome. Yeah. All right, Lawrence, well, I'm going to let you get out of here. All right, man. All right, man, have a good Take one. Take care. See you. All right, bye-bye. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.